I'm Gretchen Baglios. And I'm Marin Miller. And this is I'll Meet You There podcast. Episode 3. Sure is. Episode 3. It is October 18th. It's been a couple weeks since we did this last time. <laughs> um, and Indeed. We are... Um, today's topic is exploring our first memory of race and racism. So going back to the first part of our, what we call the racial autobiography. Um, but before we get there, let's do a check-in. Mm-hmm. And let's check in using the four agreements. And, um, this was a piece that we introduced in our first episode. Um, So the four agreements for having a conversation about race are to stay engaged, speak your truth, experience discomfort, and to expect and accept non-closure. So Marin, which Mm -hmm. one of those four agreements, hmm, how to say it, which one is really... I guess I want to say, which one are you noticing yourself really living out right now? Hmm. That's a very... It's one of those questions where, especially a podcast or whatever, and I feel like I've been asked it before in other realms, too, and it should... It feels like it should just be an easy answer, but... (laughs) Or that's my impression is that it should be putting like parameters around it on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think right now is speaking my truth in the terms of stepping out and sharing more of myself uh, as I am trying to build my business and step out as as kind of a life coach, um, as someone who has a Facebook group that I'm trying to support other white women in learning this protocol, in showing up, at, in being reflective, and I'm trying to just kind of figure the ins and outs of my of how to stay stay ooh, stay engaged that's another one stay engaged and show up for that group and really model for that group and part of the hard part for me of staying engaged is to step in and like do like a Facebook live video which I did this morning hmm. um, <clears throat> and even just here in the podcast like uh, wanting to be someone who speaks up, who, who leans in and, uh, it still feels hard or scary or fearful. I was, I talked to my coach this week and she's encouraging me to do some marketing and, and kind of going into different groups and just sharing a post and who I am and, and offering free sessions. And I was telling her how I'm like, I'm even scared of going into different groups and just posting like what might happen. <laughs> like, what might happen? And she's like, Marin, what is the worst that could happen? Yeah. I was like, well, I guess they could just take, put, 
kick me out of the group. And she's like, yeah, that's pretty low risk. I'm like, I know, but I needed you to tell me that. Like I was like, it's been um, debilitating in some senses of like, I've, oh, I should go check and see what the group's agreements are and can I, or should I? And then I get all overwhelmed with that. And then I don't. And so then that it prohibits me or inhibits me from building and creating the business I want. And mm-hmm. anyway, so, um, and just recently too, the, the writing that I, that I did, I deemed it or titled it Dear White Man, and um, I tried to get that uh, published, and the response that I got from that, from from writing out my truth in a sense, and, and getting a response that seems very predictable and typical, I guess, and uh, just trying to... Uh, like stay centered and know what it is that I feel and want and um, feeling more confident in sharing that. Mm. And I guess there's like a newer light, like fire under me of like, I'm, I've been, I'm going to continue to practice this and continue to show up and continue to put myself out there. And I know that there will be predictable responses from white people, from white men, from white women. But um, I, and I, I can anticipate that now and not let it like derail me like it has in the past. Mm. So speak your truth, but also that ties in with staying engaged. Yeah. It sounds like you have a lot, like a lot of arenas where that's coming out. Yeah. Um, I heard you say that there's a fire under you right now. Yeah. You want to say more about that? Um, I just, a, a renewed energy. The last couple of weeks, just with the season change and here in Colorado, like we basically had winter for three days, like it snowed and it was cold and it was just like very abrupt. Um, and maybe just with, also astrological the shifts and things that are happening um just it i felt like seasonal depression was coming in or like it just felt down and so um that was discombobulating and hard but i also you know i've done i've felt that and know that that's um passes and I'm feeling like I'm up I'm on like a cycle on an upswing out of that and just feeling like I got some rest out of that I had some release and tears and um healing through that and now yeah just the sun is out it's a little bit warmer and I uh, there's like a new renowned sense of purpose of what I'm trying to do and Mm. it it, it's exciting Mm. I'm so glad to hear all of that. Yeah, and just, I mean, last weekend I realized, like, the three people that I, you know, like, really count on keeping me afloat or just, like, keeping me going, like, I hadn't really connected with them. And so once I got to talk to you and I talked to Shannon, it was like, oh, yeah, like, a good reminder of, like, I really need also just, uh, it was just kind of a... A circumstantial thing but um also a good reminder too of just I needed I needed my people mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit yeah 
Yeah. Um, I just want to affirm you for what you said. Thanks. Um, and also share, I haven't done this with you like one-on-one or on the phone, but your e-newsletter that you sent out. Yeah. Um, I haven't had a chance to read it carefully, but I did a, like a cursory, um, I glanced through it at my lunch break at school one day and I was like, Oh my goodness. Like it just, I was so, the word proud doesn't capture what I was feeling. I think it's, I was in Mm. awe of you. I was like, Mm. Oh my gosh. Like I feel, um, called in by the way that you do stay engaged and speak your truth and called in to, to do more of that myself because of your example. Um, Mm. And even in, in the response that you got from from the E! magazine about your piece that you wrote, Dear White Men, um, I think you saw, like, my instinct was like, okay, change it and send it back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, the editor in me is like, yeah, then do it, because you want it to get published. Mm-hmm. But, like, mm-hmm. I heard you pause and be like, no, because what they want me to change isn't in alignment with what I was trying to say in the first place. And so yeah, uh, the word integrity comes up when I hear you share um, mm. that you're making choices and some of them are, for lack of a better term, like they're not opening more doors. They're like putting a pause button on some things that yeah. are in motion. Um, and I also see them like, like you said, like lighting a fire underneath you too, because you are in your integrity. Hmm. Um, and I'm in awe of that. So just want to hold that and say thank you. <laughs> thank you. Mm-hmm. It means a lot to hear that. Um, is there anything else? Nope, that's it. All right. <laughs> See you later. No. Yeah. And see. Um. I mean, there is, but yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the basic. <laughs> um. Do you want me to go? Yeah, go for it. Okay. What? Um. The agreement. What agreement. I. I am like said to you before we hit record I feel like I'm firing on all cylinders right now um Mm -hmm. I feel centered but it's a really high energy centered uh Mm. so centered like I have been doing a ton of preparation in my action quadrant in my thinking like planning and my planning brain is on full speed um I'm going to national summit tomorrow it's in Philadelphia so excited to see my Courageous Conversation family, minus a couple folks. Marin. Yeah. <laughs> no guilt intended. No. Just I'm going to miss you. Uh, um, oh. It's a highlight of my year. Every year for the past, it's, this will be my fourth year, and there's like this, this potency to the whole time that I've felt every year, surrounding it, during it. Um, And so I've been in planning mode for it, and much like every single time, 
every other of the three times that I've gone, I think I have everything planned and then something comes up and I'm like, oh, <laughs> I need to, <laughs> oh, I wasn't expecting to feel that or, or think that way or, or receive that challenge. Um, and there's been a lot of challenges leading up to this one. I think, mm-hmm. I think I am in denial when I say to myself, what I have already, like, it's going to be good. Like I've led this session that I'm leading before I've co-facilitated it several times. The content is more familiar certainly than last year when I co-facilitated it. Um, and it's a really big room. It's about 150 people and Mm. I love what we're, the content of it. It's really deep. It's really reflective. It gets participants to really look at kind of like our first question, what, what holds you back from being your most actionable, courageous, anti-racist self and mm. gets people to do that deep dive into their own mm. barriers. And so I love that stuff. Like give me that all day, <laughs> self-exploration right. all day. Um, yes. And Alex is leading a workshop for white men from head to heart. Uh, moving from head to heart and exploring what it means to show up differently as white men. So instead of strength coming from stoicism and all of my resume accomplishments, where is there strength in my vulnerability? Um, and he and I have had a lot of really challenging conversations about this workshop leading up to it, hmm. um, where even in giving feedback, I have felt like he hasn't listened to the full, Mm. to his full capacity. Um, And then on top of that, I, I want this session. I want this session to, to reach white men. Um, Yeah. Because I don't want to carry the weight of white men. Mm -mm. And I, <laughs> I'm glad there's, there's like 53 people signed up for it. And I think there's a handful of people in that group that are not white men. So I'm like, okay, guys, like you signed up for it. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so I'm just really curious to see where it goes. I'm also a bit, not a bit, I'm already in some judgment and defense mm. around it. Like, I I am anticipating that there that my conversations with white women that in those conversations the Kavanaugh appointment will come up. Mm-hmm. Um and so I've been wrestling with what it means to be a woman, so to be part of an oppressed group and at the same time a white woman, so part of the oppressor. Yeah group, the both and of being oppressor and oppressed, and how do I allow those two things to exist in myself, because one way that I've dealt with it is like shutting down all the quote-unquote female feminine parts of myself in order to combat patriarchy, like, yeah. In order for me to fit in and be seen by white men, I have shed pieces of my softness, of my humility, of my emotional side. Um, And 
that's where I'm experiencing a lot of discomfort is even in anticipating those conversations, um, making assumptions that they will happen, making judgments about who might have them. Um, I don't like that I am sitting in judgment around that. I have discomfort mm-hmm. around that. I also have a lot of discomfort in a piece that I'm facilitating in front of a room um, where I introduce a framework from the perspective of indigenous people worldwide, like from multiple Mm -hmm. indigenous perspectives. It's been sourced into one bound published book. And this is the book by which the slides that I'm presenting come from. And I'm really sitting in discomfort around one, how little I know about my own indigenous background. And and when I say that, I don't mean indigenous to the U.S. I mean, Mm -mm. I don't have ownership or pride or knowledge passed down to me from ancestors past two generations. Um, And a lot of what has been passed down to me, when I look at the lists of these are aspects of white culture that can be harmful I'm like well that's what was passed down to me in a lot of ways yeah this for sure no don't show emotion you know work hard to get ahead um individuality this emphasis on the spoken or the written word and academia and where I'm experiencing discomfort is how often when I've encountered a framework that's not subscribing to those pieces, for example, wisdom of the fourfold way with the warrior, the healer, the teacher, the visionary, it really appeals to me because it's such a shift away from what I've been taught that I want to latch on to it. And then the danger zone comes when I'm suddenly the one who's sharing this wisdom and I'm this white woman doing it. And I'm really wrestling in the discomfort, messy space of what it means to, you know, this wisdom has been around for thousands of years. I have not known about it. I have not inquired about it. I I was completely unconscious about it. And what harm does my own ignorance about it have, number one? What harm does my bringing it up have, number two? And this connects to who I am as a white teacher. Like, most teachers in the U.S. are white women. And our curriculum that we have to teach includes, hopefully, a variety of racial, cultural perspectives. How do we do that in integrity? How do I do that? I've really been thinking about the yoga piece. Like, I practice yoga several times a week. I go to some studios occasionally. It has really benefited me in many ways. And I wrestle with what I feel, the discomfort I feel when I go to a studio and I see white women teaching this tradition that comes from people of color. It's just... There's something that's feeling more and more inherently wrong about it to me. Um, Mm. 
And so I'm really struggling with my discomfort and judgment around being a quote-unquote spiritual white woman. <laughs> um, whose wisdom am I taking and saying that it's my own belief? Like, I'm just really there. Like, and I don't have a, I don't want it yet because I think I need to be here right now. Um, mm -hmm. but I don't see a very quick, <laughs> again, I'm, I experience discomfort and then my next instinct is like, how do I get out of it? So, right. um, my discomfort also comes from anticipating all of the humility that I know I need to, to lead with to frame yeah. this piece that I'll be introducing and like what that's going to look like, what that's going to feel like to say what I'm, what I'm saying right now in front of a room of people that I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and my co-facilitator was really pushing me on it last night and he's like, I really think you need to introduce this. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Mm. Um, so I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to discern how much I, I share, um, yeah, and so I guess I'm experiencing and experience discomfort, I'm also in that place of non-closure, yeah. there's nothing that feels like the, the best way to go except for through it, and going to just continue to feel messy and, and feel like I'm in this place of tension because I'm calling attention to something that has felt wrong to me for some time now, um, mm. has felt not okay. Um, so that's where I am, really, really living out the discomfort, and I want to stay there. So I want to keep doing this. I want to keep, um, stay curious about what is that feeling in my gut telling me? So hmm. that's where I am. Thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, just that. I mean, you're going into this big, important event with really important people in your life with a really important message, right? And that whole conundrum of being white, but also now you know things and so wanting to share and be a model, but also like, how do I do this? Like with that word you were saying earlier, like with integrity mm -hmm. and with, and, and really show up in the way that I, that you would like to show up and, and make sure that certain white cultural aspects aren't those pieces that show up. Mm. And it feels big right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I mean, makes sense. 
if you weren't feeling that, that might be a concern though too, right? <laughs> like, yeah. versus I got this, I'm going to do this. I've done this four years. <laughs> right, right. <sighs> All right. Is there more? Oh, there will be. <laughs> but I can, I can just. But also, so much excitement, right? Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Like going to your place. Yes. Going to Summit. I get to go with Alex. We're engaged. Yeah. We met at Summit three years ago. Um, I get to see my mom. I get to be in Pennsylvania. I get yeah. to be in fall for like five days and then come back and be done with that crap. <laughs> <laughs> um that was a little dig yes it was that was a dig about <laughs> the snow pictures that i was sent by several people this week and i'm just like mm-hmm, i remember it last year since moving here i'm like also in this very smug place of like remember everybody it gets really cold where you live <laughs> i'm so sorry <laughs> But actually, you're not. <laughs> no, just smug. Um, my parents are coming out to California for Christmas. Yay. I'm also really jazzed about that. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, let's keep moving. Yep. So, do you want to just? I think we hit on each one of these. Um, the review of the tools yeah so just a reminder in our past few episodes and as we are just doing the episodes as we go forward we are utilizing um, the courageous conversations about race protocol Um, we've used the compass to check in we've used the agreements like we did today to check in and we're also utilizing mindful inquiry or or being trying to be really good listeners and utilize um les Munois, uh, mindful inquiry of what i heard you say or tell me more or just trying to keep the person in um talking versus interjecting mm-hmm. so that is our intention is to be models of that <clears throat> All right, so um, we're going to start with our first experience with race or racism, and this is really touching on the next piece of the Courageous Conversation Protocol, which is the conditions. Um, The first condition is to, the first two conditions really engage a conversation about race, and so the first one is to keep it personal, local, and immediate. So if I'm talking about race, I'm talking about what I have experienced. Um, so this is really good for me. It keeps me from generalizing, um, making assumptions. It also holds me more accountable for my impact. So if I say, I do it often in educator talk. We, our, our school, our students, our data, are disparities. Um, if I put my before those words, I I feel that much more called in to think about hmm, what is what is my data telling me about the kids in my classroom and my teaching. Um, so mm. it 
for me, personal local media helps keep me more accountable to stay engaged in ways that I can inadvertently allow racism to continue. Um, and then the mm-hmm. second condition is to isolate race. So even though we could talk about many things, um, like our gender, our gender identity, our abilities, um, a lot of times in conversations, I, I'll say for me at schools that I've worked in, I notice that conversations shift away from, like, we'll be having a conversation very clearly about race without saying that it's about race because other things mm-hmm. become more comfortable for me to talk about for, you know, I noticed that instead of talking about race of our students, of my students, it's easier for me to say it's free and reduced lunch or lower income kids or all of these code words that really mean black and brown students. Um, right. So we're, we're really trying to be focused on, I'm really trying to be focused on what does race have to do with it? Understanding those mm-hmm. other things are also factors, but race really often, from what I've experienced, gets gets pushed to the side. Um, well, and maybe is the historical context or way of certain situations that kids and families and parents are in. What was that? Or not. So, like, people will potentially, you were saying, in terms of teachers or schools and trying to uh, go away from race and maybe go into class and talking about class. Mm-hmm. And, again, that is an easy distraction, but when you understand historical parameters or context of housing and, and specifically housing but and, and how people or where people are and why certain circumstances are, it all it stems from race. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I believe that oftentimes the conversation can shift away from race because that history is, it's still in the unconscious space for a lot of folks. Yeah. Um, I know that even just looking at data that explicitly is doing comparative study based on race of student scores, I've been like, oh my gosh, like across all income levels, black students are still at the bottom. Yeah. Across all education levels. Like, so thank you. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that piece. Just keeping the lens on race. Um, So with that in mind, we're going to go back and talk about our first experiences with race and racism. Uh, And you want to start? Sure. Okay. So for me, what I can recall um, as a first experience or an early experience is, I don't remember necessarily how old I was, maybe fifth or sixth grade, possibly lower middle school, like seventh grade. Um, 
and I don't, yeah, I don't really remember the details, but I, I do specifically remember a joke that was told, um, and it was by a white male friend of the family. And again, I don't remember the context and how many people or who was there, but I do remember there was other kids there and potentially other adults there, because we often were together with like three or four families hanging out, and the joke was. Um, what do you call a black squirrel? And the answer is putting the word squirrel and the n-word together. And when I think back at that experience and that moment, now I understand the the profoundness of that, really, because I also think of just the space I was in and people's reactions. Like, no one, no one made it seem like that was wrong or inappropriate. Um, it, also, it almost gave permission to use the N-word. And I know that I repeated that joke thinking it was funny because that white male in my life got laughs and was not, you know, prohibited or no one said it, you know, it just, it happened and everyone seemed to be fine with it. Everyone laughed at it. <laughs> so it must be okay. And so as a, as a white woman who grew up in a white suburb, a white affluent suburb, where I, my experience was mostly white people, my teachers, my friends, my family, everywhere I went, people looked like me. Um, I just think about all the things that weren't said mm -hmm. and the power of silence and omission and all the messages I received without even knowing I was receiving them. Um, and again, just the permission and the okayness that that joke potentially sh shared or offered is just like makes my stomach hurt and my chest get tight. Um, and so, Yeah, it's interesting to me that that is, that's a really prominent memory. And now, and I didn't remember that I had repeated it until, till this moment. Like, I'm pretty sure I did. Mm -hmm. And so, whoa, like, there it is. That's how it continues to happen and perpetuate is, is by seeing people in our lives, adults in our lives, movies, TV shows, media in our lives that tells us a story, that gives us permission. And... Ugh. <laughs> Thank you for being so vulnerable. The, yeah.
when you tell it now what new understandings do you have about how it has shaped your life it's why like what robin d'angelo ends up um, sharing often in her in her talks is this idea of white people can go their entire lives and not understand what they're missing out on mm -hmm. or even understand the system and conditioning that they exist in the very limited scope and lens of life, of people, mm -hmm. of experiences, and how values and beliefs are passed down. Mm -hmm. And again, in a, in a, especially when it comes to white culture, it's in my experience, it was it's mostly of the things, yeah, that were that were given permission or just weren't said. And so in that, again, in that moment where no one in my, in that sphere was like, no, dude, that's a horrible joke. Don't say that. Right. <laughs> like, I, yeah, just, I'm, I was, I saw someone in my life do it. And so I'm, I did it too. Mm -hmm. And. And I just envision, and then I envision how that goes forward in my life of why and how I wanted to be a teacher and, and what that meant for when I was a white teacher without knowledge of being a racialized being, what it meant to be white, the cultural norms that I thought were quote unquote normal that I was um, exhibiting and trying to stay keep my classroom in that parameter of like just the potential harm that I that I did without knowing it hmm. Hmm. I share the impact it has on me to hear you tell it yeah um Well, there's like a, I, I'm not glad for this, but I feel a sense of relief because I've had similar experiences and it's like, okay, like I haven't talked about those a lot. Um, you've had them too. <laughs> and so yeah, there's a relief in hearing like, uh, it takes some of the, it lessens what I want to do sometimes, which is to like villainize the people who say racist jokes right. where it's like, right. No, these are people that I love. Like, yeah, there's people that I love deeply in my life who are also people who I've heard some of the most racist slurs and jokes from. Yeah. Um, and I have some shame around that and it helps me give myself some more grace, give the people in my life some more grace for being human 
Mm. To hear that it's also something true for you and some people in your life mm. and that you repeated it. Like your vulnerable, for vulnerability to, you didn't have to say that. <laughs> you could just say, well, I heard I honestly didn't remember it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it just like hit me in the the gut punch today in this moment. Like, oh. Yeah. And how many times have you told that story or revisited that story? Numerous times. Yeah. It's like, it's the other piece. I really find this, this exercise of revisiting pieces of my life, excuse me, <laughs> through the lens of race, even though I can tell the story, same, you know, the same events took place. I can tell the same events over and over. My t in my retelling of it, new truths are yeah. discovered about yeah. myself. I discover new things about myself. Like, oh, I wonder if that connects to to this that happened later for me. Um, right. The other thing, the other impact your story has on me is that I I feel some urgency. I feel some guilt around times when I have been that bystander. Um, you know, whoever the other adults were who were present, who didn't say anything. Yeah. Um, times in my life when I haven't spoken up because I don't want to insert whatever, <laughs> you know, be too loud, be too much, rock the boat. Right talk about race right. all the time. Um, right. The harm that my silence can have. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah. Thank you for holding it. How about you? What was your first experience, earliest recall? Um, I I have told this story a couple, like I've told it many times. I tell it in facilitation, um, but I think about what it was like when I was just starting school, we were living in Hyde Park neighborhood in Chicago and it was a circumstantial time. Like my dad was getting his PhD. My mom was in her first congregation or one of her first, I should say as a pastor. So they were just starting out as a couple and we, that's not true either. They were just starting out as a couple. They, what I remember is a lot of financial stress. Mm. Um, and so in some of my earliest tellings of the story, I really clung to that factor. Like we really were strapped for money. It was a point of argument for my parents a lot. We had to look for deals or free events all the time. We had to wear hand-me-downs, all these things, because I didn't want to also name 
Yeah, and that was for a period of years, and then we could leave <laughs> and go buy a house mm. in a nice neighborhood, nice quote-unquote, in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Like, um, so that's a piece of this, is for a long time I, I used the fact that we struggled financially to distance myself from white people who I perceived had a really easy life, mm. who got to have multiple, more than one car, who got to give their kids allowances, who got to buy birthday presents for their, their kids' friends, like all these things that in my little girl mind, I was like, we don't get to do that. We don't get to do that. Mm. We don't get to do that. Um, mm. But what I remember about it was in kindergarten, just noticing that I was one of three white kids in my class. Um, so in the whole classroom, I was in the racial minority. And I was young, and so I hadn't yet learned, you know, we don't talk about that. Mm. And so I talked about just differences and similarities with my my little friends that I had. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had a really close friend. Her name was Nubia. She was black. And, you know, she would, like, we kind of, we would just notice differences. Like, I noticed that she had to wear these different kind of ties in her hair and that if I tried to put them in mine, they would just fall right out. Um, she always wanted to touch my hair. I always wanted to touch hers. They felt different. Um, she had a picture in her home of a black Jesus. Like, things that I didn't see in my home that made me aware yeah. of, like, okay, there's there's differences here. Um, and there were some things about that school that after I left there and I was in a bunch of other schools, I realized, wow, that was really not the norm. Like I learned mm. the black national anthem. That's what we sang every morning. <laughs> um, and again, I used those as markers later in my life to be like, look, I am not white like other people because this is where I grew up. And at the same time, every night I would go home, we were living in student housing, and I think all my friends who lived in the same apartment complex as us were white. So at school, I would see kids of color, and at home, it was a lot of white kids. Um, and so I was noticing, like, where were the people of color? Okay, school. And then also, when there was a robbery in our apartment building and the police came to show us mug shots... I remember looking at pages of black men. I remember receiving really intense warnings from my my parents, at least I can remember. can't quite remember as specifically from my teachers, but like, you know, you do not talk to strangers. They are dangerous. And that had a racial mm. component as well. Like, I don't think yeah. my parents ever said, you know, specifically which people racially were dangerous, but I could see it. If you cross the street yeah. here, that's an unsafe neighborhood. We lock our doors when we go here. Um, and at the same time, like, I was a little girl being raised in a city, and so I needed 
that my rules were different around safety, but that was something I learned. Like I was the one to be kept safe. Um, police were there mm. to keep me Ooh. safe. <laughs> police were not people for me to fear. There were people for me to trust to keep me safe from the scary people, the scary yeah. black people. Um, and the other piece too was my first teacher, you know, when I was in that class with, with mostly students of color, my teacher was a white woman, my first, my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Snyder. And I don't think my, you know, five, six year old self would have said what I'm internalizing right now is that. I can be a teacher of kids of color, <laughs> but I definitely mm. noticed I had some unspoken familiarity with this woman, you know, going back to the hair conversation, like we had the same kind of hair. Mm -hmm. um, when I got to first grade, second grade, third grade, my teachers were black women and I idolized teachers. Everyone I had, I was so excited always to be in school. And when my teachers, you know, I remember with Miss Dawson, with Miss Mooney, my, my black elementary school teachers, like I examined them in this way of like, we are so different. <laughs> like mm. they, you know, just the differences were, were more apparent to me. And so I think about my experience and about how much I, how no one really talked to me or helped guide me and my friends through what we were noticing. Yeah. Um, I don't remember talking about race. I remember talking about how great it was to be in diversity. Um, <laughs> but I didn't learn racial consciousness through diversity. No. In fact, I think in some ways it stunted my growth in terms of racial mm. consciousness because I kept this belief of like, you know, when I moved to more white spaces to a pretty racially diverse high school, but it was still a lot more white than where I was in Chicago. I was like, well, I went to school in Chicago and I grew up with black people and like double, tripled that when I moved to Minnesota for college and it was like land of the white people. Um, <laughs> I get such a kick out of thinking of that, thinking about you coming to St. Olaf <laughs> and just what that was like. <laughs> well, and out of all goddamn places, like out of all places, excuse my profanity. Um, <laughs> For my first experience in Minnesota to be Sainal of College, like, founded yeah. in Nordic and Swedish, like, Norwegian, really, but, like, the whitest of the white. And, of course, like, I didn't know anything about that, right. and I didn't feel included in it, and so my way to, okay, I'm getting too far into college, but, yeah, it definitely shaped the way that I distanced myself from other white people for years and years and yeah. years. Yeah. Um, so, 
What I remember is just the, I think the segregation between where I was living, where I was going to school, notions of safety and who was safe and what neighborhoods would say were safe and that really being based around where people of color were versus where white people lived. Um, yeah. And then definitely when we moved out of Chicago into Pennsylvania, I received messaging of, like, I all of a sudden could go for a walk a couple blocks around my neighborhood, and it felt like this huge amount of freedom because mm. we had been, my little brother and I had been, like, scared, scared. <laughs> well, my brother had probably just been too little, but I was scared, <laughs> like, Mm. of meeting people. Um, I was really scared to be at home alone. I mean, that's something that's continued into my adult years. Mm. Yeah. So, I think that piece, and then also just seeing a reflection of someone, you know, I could be a teacher someday. Mm. And it's okay for me to be a teacher of kids of color. You know, that's a pattern I'm, I live out right now. Yeah. It's a pattern I saw my mom live out. So, not saying that's, like, bad and I feel ashamed of that, but it's, again, another point, just like what I was talking about at the beginning, that that situation um, me being a white teacher of kids of color is not one that I just sit with easily. <laughs> right. I feel a lot of res- you. a lot of responsibility, a lot of tension. Yeah. Um, and yet, I yeah, that's more recent. But telling the story brings all of that up. So yeah. We'll dive back into some more yeah. of that yes. as we yes. continue to do our autobiographies. Yes. So, if Thank you, you for sharing. You're welcome. Thanks for letting me share and listen. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just reminds me always of this, the power of story and multiple perspectives. You know, I've heard you tell that story numerous times as well. And it's always such a great reminder for me that my experience is not the only one mm-hmm. and especially even with white people right like and to be thinking about that uh, that white people have different experiences of what they've been taught or not taught or said or haven't said and just the complexity of that so if you are listening and wanting something to, you know, do, <laughs> not like sitting around, what do I do? But like, I want to be in the struggle for anti-racism. What do I do? Like, start with this. Yeah. And share it with somebody. I would love yeah. for people who listen to this to like text or call or email and be like, hey, you want to share our first bookend or can I share mine with you? I'd be like, yes. Yeah. So, you know, 
know who you are. You're a select <laughs> few at this point. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank um, you for listening. <laughs> let's close it out. Yeah. Appreciations. Yeah. Affirmations. I appreciate you. Back to your opening. I appreciate you for walking in your integrity and doing so in a way that doesn't just appease other people, but affirms the work that you're doing and the message mm. that it is that is only yours to put out. Keep it up. <laughs> Woo, I will receive that. Yeah, that felt like a big a big growth. Like to not want to go straight to oh no, I have to fix it. To wait. No, that's how I felt. Yeah. <laughs> That was my truth. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, I want to appreciate you always in terms of there's like being able to hold me and us and and just doing this podcast with you, right, I feel like has highlighted, like, how we both tend to show up, which can be different and might not always, like, align. And But I am so grateful that you are in my life and that, we, that we've had practice and space and time and have are just able to continue to lean in and, and hold each other, mm. even if it's hard. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. Um, we recorded this episode three about a week ago, and it was so lame. <laughs> it was so bad. And it was lame because we hadn't checked in and connected in a meaningful way in too long, and so we just, okay, I'm saying we. I jumped into this podcast, like, let me check this off my list of things to do today. Ready, set, go. And it felt like crap. Oh, I did not feel good. <laughs> and I didn't. Yeah, it was just, it was no good. And we right. worked through it. Yeah. Like, not in that moment. We did. It took us a couple of days to be like, hey, what was going yeah. on? <laughs> <laughs> and it really that? affirms for me how personal this is before it's, yeah. before I can attempt to produce or put anything out yeah. there, how much yeah. work I need to do personally. Yeah. And that comes down to relationship. Like, yeah. if I am not right with you, hmm. why would I subject other people to that mess? Where we're like, <laughs> not really talking about what we want to talk about. Talking, oh, I was definitely talking over you at one point. Like, <laughs> ugh. So. Well, and just, we didn't let our, like, we weren't, uh, like, we weren't necessarily, or I wasn't. Yeah, just in the moment, it wasn't like we weren't centered or whatever. So it just things were off, and we didn't name it, and so we just pushed through it. Versus saying, you know what, just not today. So it was a good lesson. We didn't even push through it. We got stuck up in it, and (laughs) just okay. Yeah, that's real. That's real. It was like (laughs) emotional 
emotionally stagnant quicksand. Yeah. It was like... It was yes! <laughs> That's perfect! That's totally what it is! So nasty. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> and... Okay. Here we are. Try again. So. This felt so much better. Yeah, I agree. All right. <sighs> we affirmed right. each other. I do want to affirm... <laughs> I want to affirm Shannon, too. Yeah. Shannon Fisher is killing it in Michigan. She is utilizing the protocol with stuff coming up with her admin, with with her superintendent, with policy boards, mm. and she is speaking her truth and just grounded in this. Mm. She went to to Summit a year ago and she is doing this. Mm. And I'm so proud of her. So I have yes, to I have Shannon, to give her shout love out. you. Yeah. I will love miss you, so you being at Summit. Yeah. Um, I'm going to affirm my love. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, he has done a lot of work and I don't mean like sitting at a computer researchy kind of work. I mean like asking for other people's perspectives, women's perspectives, mm. people of color, He's held accountability partners throughout his whole process of developing this curriculum that he's going to facilitate, and he's he has shifted so many times. Um, shifted, evolved. He's really evolved. I've seen him really grow through this process, and um, yeah, I appreciate him. I'm in awe of him. Yeah, I feel ditto. so blessed to be able to walk beside him at summit. Hmm. So, put that out there for you, boo. I'm so excited. <laughs> Me too. Okay. Excited for you. All right. Close it out. Yeah, I gotta go to bed. <laughs> I got a Tony. Yeah, you gotta go to bed and get up and and go. Yeah. I'm going okay, to bed. I at got a Tony Morrison tonight. quote. <laughs> yeah. I have to go to bed three. This no, but that's well. That's real, but also like you as an Annie and Graham Seven, get your you need all the energy you can for this big oh, buzzy God. weekend. I just buzz the whole time, and when I'm done, and I don't mean drink, I mean energy buzz. No, um, yes, I, I just want to name it's that. It's pretty incredible. Gretchen doesn't drink. Yeah. Um, and then I crash. Yeah. So it's gonna be high energy. I got all my outfits picked out. <laughs> My suitcase has been packed for four days. <laughs> Alex and I had a date night on Tuesday, and all we talked about was Summit. I'm like, we are so, we're so dorky. Oh, it's wonderful. So dorky. So in love. Okay. Yep. Close it out. All right. I love you. Close it out. I love you, too. I'll send you this tonight. Okay. okay. Here we go. Right. Some words of wisdom to Tony to close it off. Mm. No one ever talks about the moment you found that you were white. Or the moment you found out you were black. That's a profound revelation. The minute you find that out, something happens. You have to rene renegotiate everything. Tony Morrison. Tony Morrison. Bye, Mark. Bye.